Good evening and welcome to the show. Well, Australia has had three big elections in the past 12 months. The federal election in May last year, which brought in the new Labor government under Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. The Victorian election in November, which returned the Dan Andrews Labor government, arguably the worst government in Australian history. And New South Wales last month, which also flipped the state to Labor under new Premier Chris Minns. The Liberal Party is on the outer in all but one state across Australia. What should the Liberal Party do to regain middle Australia and the forgotten middle class on whom Robert Menzies based the party when he co-founded it in 1944? Well, they could do worse than to follow the example of Tanya Davies, the Liberal state member for Badgeries Creek in Western Sydney and one of the handful, if not only, member to increase her majority at any of those three elections. Davies explained the secret of her success on this show just last week. Uh, and that has been my first and only priority, which is my community comes first. And so when there are situations in government that arise where I feel very, very deeply and strongly that I do not support or do not agree, and I can see that it's going to be harmful and hurtful for my community, I cannot but speak out and stand up on behalf of my community and be their voice into government and even beyond in terms of the media and having these issues raised and aired on their behalf. Here's the twist. She's referring to standing up not to Labor or some other nefarious political force, but to her own party, which was in government at the time and had decided to impose its worst lockdowns during COVID on her electorate. Davies shot to fame by posting Facebook Live videos criticising the lockdowns and vaccine mandates. She also spoke at public rallies criticising her own government's vaccine policies. In other words, she stood up for her constituents. Davies has thrown her hat in the ring for the role of deputy leader of the party, which along with the leadership will be decided late next week. Davies would make an excellent deputy leader. She's been in parliament for 12 years and the respect she has earned from her constituents should be a template for her colleagues. But one insider told me this week, and I hope he's wrong, that she is unlikely to win the deputy position because some of her colleagues are still upset about her speaking out against the party's vaccine and COVID policies, even though those policies are now not only discredited, they may yet be central to widespread class action lawsuits from people injured or killed as a result of them. If Davies is stymied, and again, I hope she isn't, it will be another sign that the Liberal Party has lost touch with its base. Here's another sign. Moira Deeming is a new Liberal, mem liberal member of the Victorian Parliament who spoke at a rally for women's rights, recently crashed by a gang of comical Nazis doing Sig Heil salutes. And for doing that, she is now temporarily excluded from the party by state opposition leader John Pesuto. What does all this mean? Well, let's bring in Dan Wild of the Institute of Public Affairs, the most sensible think tank in the nation, 
to discuss where the Liberal Party is going wrong. Dan, welcome. Fred, great to be with you. Dan, we'll get into the Federal Party, the Federal Liberal Party's new robust stance on the voice to Parliament in just a minute. But let's first focus on these two women, Davies and Deeming, and the disconnect the Liberal Party seems to have at the state level. Where do you think they're going wrong? Well, Davies and Deeming speak for millions of Australians. They have a very common sense approach. They're merely giving voice to the concerns that a lot of people in our society have on whatever issue it might be. And they're exactly the kind of people that we should have in our political arena. I mean, Moira Deeming is somebody who's tenacious. She's outspoken. She's has courage. Um, and also the thing to understand here in Victoria, Fred, is that the Liberal Party has been decimated and they only have two representatives in the western metropolitan part of Melbourne, only two. Moira is one of them or was one of them. So now they have one. So they have half their representation in the western suburbs of Melbourne, which is exactly the part of the state and exactly the part of the city that they need to be going to to win. These are low income, uh, you know, working class, uh, high migrant areas. Um, they, they were disproportionately affected by lockdowns. Um, they're doing it tough in terms of rising cost of living, uh, inflation, energy bills. Um, this is where the Liberal Party needs to be going to win votes and to actually become a viable opposition. And instead, they're embroiled in this completely self-inflicted internal controversy. So, look, this is the issue. They have to be brave. You have to have courage. You've got to stand up to people like Daniel Andrews because otherwise he's going to just keep doing what he's doing without any effective um, opposition. And it's like I say, I think people like Moira... Um, you know, perhaps can, you know, augment or nuance their style now that they're in politics rather than outside politics. But the kind of things that Moira is saying is consistent with the concerns of so many people here in Melbourne and across Australia. There's so many similarities between uh, Moira and Tanya. I mean, not only in their style, but also, as you say, in their electorates. Western suburbs, often largely uh, migrant, but good, solid, uh, you know, working people wanting to raise families and wanting the government to get out of their out of their lives. Well, that's right. I mean, these are people that don't have a voice in our politics. There's, you know, 25 to 30 percent of Australians that don't believe that they have a, uh, you know, valid political representation at the state or federal level. Um, they These are people that usually vote Labor, typically and historically, but Labor, because they're woke on cultural issues, uh, they support mass migration, which is suppressing wages, and they're going hard on climate change, which is pushing up bills and destroying jobs. They don't have a voice in the Labor Party anymore. Uh, and they find that often the Liberal Party, when they do have someone that's going to speak for them, like Tanya or Moira, that the Liberal Party doesn't want to hear from them either, either that they're pushing them out and pushing them to the side. So, look, I think that there's a real issue, not just for the Liberal parties here. I mean, as you know, the Liberal Party is in opposition everywhere other than in Tasmania. They need to find a new way and a better way of speaking to, you know, they talk about the quiet Australians and the forgotten Australians. Well, these are the people the outer western suburbs of Sydney and Melbourne, the regions of our nation. We've been touring through our regions. I had a chat with you uh, from Tamworth and also from Bathurst and uh, other places around the nation. These are the people that are down and out, being left behind. They need to have a voice because our democracy and our nation depends on it. Well, there's been a good development at the federal level. Here's a clip that went viral today. Why do you think those kind of peak bodies are, are rejecting those calls by you and, and what evidence do you have that there is this so-called rampant child sexual abuse 
occurring in remote central Australia. Well, we, I mean, with respect, that's such an ABC question. Do you live locally? I mean, do you speak to people on the streets? Do you hear what it is they're saying to you? I mean, do you, do you believe... I live do you, you live locally. You don't believe there's any problem here? No, I'm asking you, what evidence do you have that there Well, is? I've spoken to the police and the social workers, some of whom are out on stress leave at the moment because of the scenes that they've endured. Finally, Dan, opposition leader Peter Dutton is getting feisty over a topic that calls for a very robust approach. Now, the fact that the leftists like the ABC treat this as a political issue rather than an urgent humanitarian one says a lot about them. What did you make of Dutton's performance in Alice Springs today? Uh, well, bravo to Peter Dutton. This is great leadership. Uh, coming out against the voice was critical. Um, and I've been watching the press coverage and the, and the um, interviews they've been giving both, uh, you know, Jacinta Price and Peter Dutton have been in the Alice yesterday and today. And, well, these have been formidable performances. It's been outstanding. They've been very clear communicators. Uh, Peter Dutton has been very clear in what, he, what his beliefs are, what his views are, what the shortcomings of the Albanese government are. So I very much see this as the beginning of the fight back, if they're able to keep this up. Clearly, they're generating pressure. Uh, Albanese is going to have to respond at some point because it looks like Dutton and Jacinda are just going to keep going. In the Alice, you know, beyond the politics of this, I mean, it's a tragedy what's happening here in, in the Alice Springs and other remote parts of, of Australia. The idea that a Canberra-based voice to Parliament's going to fix these problems is just so far removed from reality. And uh, it goes, you know, everything that you've been talking about, Fred, and we've been talking about, we don't need another Canberra-based bureaucracy. Um, you know, they might be well-meaning people, but they're not going to fix the problems. We need more cops on the beat. You know, the number one priority of government is to keep people safe. And they're not doing that. It's a pretty straightforward policy thing. It's the right thing to do and that Albanese would spend more time talking about the voice than actually trying to fix the problems, uh, says everything you need to know about his government. Well, it all makes sense. What you, well, everything you say makes sense, that, you know, the real problem is getting these kids off the street, getting them into school and into safe homes. All that seems very obvious. Do you think this is the start of the momentum for the No campaign? Because at the moment, there's not a lot of momentum in it. I think there is momentum and I think it's building. I think the polling is, is not good for the yes case. They want to be at about 70% by, by now. They're at about 55. Queensland's already going to vote no, according to the polling. Western Australia is not far off. So I think there's a lot to um, look forward to on the, on the no side of the campaign. And I think that Peter Dutton's contribution to the debate has been critical because it means that there will be a debate now. Um, you know, I would have liked to have seen, you know, Peter Dutton and the Liberals come out earlier uh, against the voice. And I would have liked to have seen them just say, you know, this is going to divide us by race. But um, I understand the politics of it. And I'm glad that we now have a debate because if you had both sides backing in the voice, the problem would be that Australians wouldn't get to have a proper debate about this. Um, I'm relieved. And I think millions of Australians are relieved that at least now we're going to have a proper debate. Now uh, we've got you know, Peter Dutton and Jacinta Price that are, you know, pretty, um, you know, pretty effective. They're getting out there. So I agree with you that there is now a bit of momentum getting generated and um, I think that this is positive for our country. Well, as you mentioned earlier, you've toured quite a few regional towns lately. What's, there, what's the feeling about the voice in the bush these days? Well, I mean, they're getting smashed in the regions. That's the reality of it. No one listens to them. And now they're told that they're racist because they don't want the voice. I mean, this is exactly the problem with our country, which is these are the people that 
uh, are, you know, they define our nation. They, they put food on the table, they keep the lights on, they're proud of our nation, they do the right thing, they play by the rules, and then every single time they're talked down to by city-based politicians. And the moral browbeating is only going to get worse. Most people across the regions that we've spoken to um, don't want to have a, a race-based body in our constitution in Canberra because they know more than anyone. I mean, don't forget it's the remote and regional parts of our country that are home to the largest uh, proportion of Indigenous populations, you know, 10, 20, 30 percent in some parts of, of these remote communities. They know that what you need to do is get people in jobs, keep kids in school and restore law and order. You don't need to have a Canberra-based bureaucracy full of academics to communicate that basic truth. These are, you know, salt of the earth people. They work on the land. They completely understand the realities and the practical realities of life. So no, they don't want to. They don't want to voice to parliament. They see this as just another city-based intervention into their lives that we don't need. Well, one of the most sensible voices on the no side is Tony Abbott. Here's a good clip of him explaining on your podcast uh, why the Liberal Party should unite behind Dutton to oppose the voice. Here's the clip. Well, Dan, like you, I admire what Peter Dutton has done and I think that it's uh, important that the Liberal Party oppose this voice, uh, not because uh, we don't feel generous towards Indigenous Australians, of course we do, and not because uh, we don't want to see Indigenous people recognised in the Constitution, of course we do, but this voice is the wrong way of doing it. As uh, you and I have been discussing for months now, Dan, this voice is uh, uh, wrong in principle, it would be disastrous in practice, and the Prime Minister is really trying to stampede us into voting yes to the voice based on the vibe. He's asking us to sign a constitutional blank check. Dan, just quickly, and then we'll, we'll move on because the voice is dominating our de the, the debate across the country too much at the moment. But I think the key point here that Tony touches on is that the yes side is claiming to be the compassionate ones. And in fact, that's not true. The no side are the ones with the, with the more compassionate solutions to these problems, don't you think? I completely agree. The, uh, you know, Tony put it very well as he, as he always does. He's a great communicator. And um, you know, you're right, the, uh, there's nothing compassionate about dividing your nation along racial lines. There's nothing compassionate about having more bureaucracy in Canberra. You know, there's nothing compassionate about morally browbeating fellow Australians. You know, we all want a better outcome for Indigenous Australians. And I think it reveals everything you need to know about Anthony Albanese, that he's quite happy to divide us along every single line. So he'll divide us based on politics, based on race, based on gender, based on where you live. He's a divisive leader. Labor is a divisive government. Everyone other than Bob Hawke has been a divisive leader from the Labor side and they're just reverting to type. This was always going to happen. Uh, Peter Dutton has been very clear when he talks about the national interest. You know, this is what John Howard talks about, the national interest. You need to act in the best interest of the nation. And if you are going to do something with recognition in the Constitution, some people will like it and some people will not. But John Howard made the point that, look, it's got to be an 80-20 proposition. You've got to bring 80% of the country with you. What Albanese is doing is a 51-49 proposition. Whether it gets up or whether it loses, you know, it's going to divide us for a very long time. This is not what you do if you want to bring the nation together. And look, many of those who are on the no side have been arguing, look, basically, we don't want to be divided by race. We want to have racial equality. And uh, racial equality is the compassionate thing to do because it recognises that we're all equal and that we shouldn't be divided. Indeed, well said. 
Well, just to lighten things up, here's another clip today, the clip that went viral today. It's from a conversation between Twitter proprietor Elon Musk and BBC journalist James Clayton, who has just said before this clip starts, Twitter has more hateful content since Musk bought it. Then Musk responds like this. If something I'm, is slightly sexist, it should be banned. I, no, is that I'm what you're saying? Not, I'm not saying anything. I'm well, saying. I'm just curious. What you, I'm, I'm trying to understand what you mean by hateful con content, and I'm asking for specific examples. Um, and if, and you just said that if something is slightly sexist, that's hateful content. Does that mean that it should be banned? Well, you've asked me. You've asked me whether my feed, whether it's got less or more. It, I'd say it's got slightly more. That's but, what I'm asking for examples. Can, right. you name, can you name one example? I, I honestly don't. You, I, I, honestly, you I don't. You can't name I, a single example. I'll tell you why. Because I don't actually use that for you feed anymore. Because I, I just don't particularly like it. But you and said actually, a lot of people. A lot of people are quite similar. I, I, I only. Well, I only look well, at hang my, on a second. You said you've seen more hateful content, but you can't name a single example. Not even one. Dan, what amuses me about this is that that BBC journalist has obviously just come straight from the office where all they do is sit around and, and look at Twitter and, and, and encounter opinions that they don't encounter inside the BBC. And then he ducks off to a chat with Elon Musk and said, what's all this hate about? What do you think? Uh, do you think the BBC lives in a bubble a bit like the ABC? Oh, they absolutely live in a bubble. I, look, I love this clip uh, and I love what Elon is doing by, you know, taking this guy to task. Clearly, he's just got a preconceived notion of hate speech and uh, anyone he doesn't like, you know, if someone says they, if someone says something that he doesn't agree with, I assume he just thinks it's hate speech. That's his, that's his definition of hate speech. So, no, good on Elon for calling this out. It happens all the time. Just like Peter Dutton today calling out the ABC, good on him. You've got to do it because otherwise they get away with what they're doing and what they're saying. You know, and closer to home, it reminds me, you've probably read about the e-safety commissioner uh, recently. There was a story in the, and James Morrow wrote this up in the, the Daily Telegraph that was syndicated across, you know, a number of other, you know, Herald Sun and other newspapers about the e-safety commissioner here basically saying that she wants to police hate speech online in relation to the, um, you know, the voice to parliament. And, uh, you know, we asked her, well, what do you mean by hate speech? You've got to define this. And it can't just be this subjective term that's used as a catch-all for censorship, which is exactly what the left want to do. You know, if they define hate speech, then they get to control the narrative. And you know, I've got to say that Twitter is a fun place again now because of Elon. I, I use Twitter a bit more. I think Elon has made it engaging and I hope he succeeds in, you know, continuing to, uh, you know, rebuild that platform. Indeed. Free speech is important. Now, let's get back to the situation in Victoria. Premier Dan Andrews made some lavish promises during the election in November and has some of the biggest infrastructure projects in the nation underway in his state. But he waited till after the election to duck off to China, presumably to ask if they could lend him some cash to pay his debts. And uh, I'm not sure that went too well. So now he's leaning on the other Australian states via the federal government to provide Victoria with a bit of financial relief. Dan, is this sinking in in Victoria and are people getting sick of, uh, of Dan's um, profligacy? Well, not yet because John Pesuto is spending too much time engaging in you know, expelling people from his own party. I mean, look, you've got to take the fight straight to Daniel Andrews. Like you say, it's not, this is not just a financial helping hand. This would be you know, one of the single biggest bailouts in the history of Federation. That's what he is asking for. Nobody is making that case. I mean, it's, look, it's getting a bit of traction in the media, but look, at the end of the day, uh, Victoria is pretty cooked at the moment. Uh, our, we've got the biggest debt by far. It's only going in one direction. 
Daniel Andrews is saying he's going to make a few small changes around the edges in the public service. Well, that's not good enough. Um, we've got these infrastructure projects which we need because of the enormous amount of migration that's coming into this city. Yet because of the stranglehold that the unions have, nothing's getting built. I mean, I live west of the city. I come over the Westgate Bridge. I remember two years ago or thereabouts when it first started, they had big banners across the Westgate. You know, they're going to build the Westgate Tunnel, right? They had big banners there saying it's going to open in late 2022. Big, big banners, you know, ahead of the election in 2022. One day... I was driving down there, all of a sudden, all those banners had gone, right? We are now in getting close to mid-2023. This thing is nowhere near built. It is nowhere near getting done. And there are stories like this right across the state. So, look, I, I back in the infrastructure projects, but you're talking about the suburban rail loop is $200 billion. We, we don't need it. It doesn't help alleviate the population pressures. It's going to cause immense disruption because the government can expropriate land within a certain you know, parameter of that particular rail loop. They're going to put in these high-rise apartments so more Labor voters can go in there and put them into a permanent majority. That's basically the political play. This needs to be discussed and debated, but you know, where is the, where's the opposition on this? Yeah, you need an effective opposition at a time like this. Now, quickly, before you go, uh, a story broke just, just this afternoon. Google... The, the, the global vice president for security at Google today announced to all staff that finally they don't need vaccine certificates to get into their place of work. Now, the thing that bothers me most about this, Dan, is that Google is the biggest information corporation in the history of the world. No corporation has had more information at its fingertips in history, and yet it is one of the last companies to lift these vaccine mandates. What do you think is going on there? Oh, I don't know. I assume a lot of the pronoun people had to take stress leave after, um, <laughs> after hearing about this, you know, enormously tra you know, traumatic sort of uh, communication. But look, I, I just think it gets to the point that uh, people around the world are recognising that almost everything that was done by governments to us in, in the COVID was wrong. And we're seeing recriminations. We're now seeing front page stories in major newspapers in Australia. I mean, the Australian a couple of weeks ago had a front page story of someone with terrible vaccine injury. I believe it was a vaccine death. Um, and you know, the courage of the problems and, and that we had are now coming to light. I mean, I think it's obviously too late. Mm. But what it does show is people like you, you, Fred, and, and people like Alan Jones and ADH and you know, there was probably, you know, I don't know, five or six commentators. Adam Crichton, he was really good from the start. Five or six commentators um, who were calling this out and saying, hey, this is going too far. We need to have another approach. All of that's been vindicated. But, you know, the problem we have here is because the media backed in this, um, they're only going to go so far. I mean, the media was just as culpable as, as the politicians in allowing to happen what happened to us. So all I can say is it should never be allowed to happen again. Yeah, well, it, it will if we give them a chance, that's for sure. The other thing to keep an eye on for now is the class action lawsuits that are going to be springing up pretty quickly. But uh, that's all we've got time for tonight. Thanks so much for your time, Dan. Cheers, Fred. That's Dan Wild from the Institute of Public Affairs. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at at Fred Paul, that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, -E, or follow ADH on at A-D-H-T-V-A-U-S. And you can catch all the latest from ADH's rapidly expanding lineup, including Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, 
David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, and of course the great Alan Jones by going to adh.tv or downloading our app. Or you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at 7 p.m. Good night.